boy was trying to talk his dad into getting him a car. And like a lot of teenage boys and dads, the dad wasn't really pleased with the length of his son's hair. And he was explaining to his son, you know, if you were to get a haircut, it would greatly enhance the chances of you getting a car. Son said to his dad, he pulled this card, but dad, Jesus had long hair. And the dad said, well, that might be true. Jesus also walked everywhere. <laughs> actually, somebody said that Jesus did actually own a car, that it was a Honda. He just never talked about it. That's from John 12, 49, where Jesus said, I did not speak of my own accord. We don't know, we don't know exactly how many miles Jesus walked during his life on earth, a lot. I can tell you that, a lot. A large part of that was logged just from trips that he made from his hometown of Nazareth down south to Jerusalem. And we call it down, but you'll notice in scripture it always says up to Jerusalem. That's because it was uphill. They weren't looking at a calendar or a uh, map the way that we do. But Jesus walked a lot. It was at least 60 miles one way just to make that trip, and he made it many times. By Jesus' time on earth, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, for a thousand years was well established. It was the political capital of the nation. It was also the center of Israel's worship, and it was the location of the temple. Over 800 times, Jerusalem, that word, occurs in Scripture. It's not just the holy city, it's not just the city of the great king. In the final scene of scripture, where the new heaven and the new earth are set in place by God, it also becomes the capital city of heaven. So Jerusalem has always been and will forever be a significant city. Jesus' visits to Jerusalem started when he was 41 days old, and his parents brought him there to present him in the temple. That's in Luke chapter 2. Like all devout Jews would do, they brought him there to the temple. And devout Jewish men would have made the trip to Jerusalem three times a year for the major feasts, the main feast. Luke records for us chapter 2. And if you'd like to get your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, that's the first place we're going to be looking this morning. Luke records this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Quick note, parents. Joseph and Mary were not perfect parents. In fact, we're going to see some of that here in just a moment, all right? Take heart. But they were doing this right. God had told his people to be at the feast every year. Joseph and Mary made sure they were at the feast every year. And these parents were making sure that they were there to worship and that Jesus was part of that. But there had to be a whole lot more to knowing God in their homes than just that trip to Jerusalem. Think this through for a moment. Step ahead to Christmas just a little bit. Can we do that? How did Jesus come to realize that he was God's son? How did that happen? 
How did Jesus come to understand that he had come to earth from heaven and that he was here for a very, very specific purpose? How did he come to know that? You don't just stumble into that idea accidentally on your own. Somewhere in the carpenter's home, there had to be some deliberate teaching going on. Somewhere in a little house in Nazareth, a mother and a father were deliberately making sure that the child that was born into their family was hearing God's word and learning God's word. Somewhere around the table, somewhere in the workshop, somewhere before bedtime, rising in the morning, a devoted father and mother were explaining to this little boy his identity and his purpose for life in their own imperfect way. Somehow the songs of the Psalms, some of them about the Messiah, must have been sung. And every year, as God told them to, Joseph and Mary, no strangers to travel, made the long journey to Jerusalem as God had told them to worship. What did they talk about along the way? What did Jesus learn as his earthly parents taught him not only his Aleph Beth Gimels, that's Hebrew A-B-G, and the other Psalms and the book of Proverbs and the Shema and the Ten Commandments and all the things that they wanted their son to get. Moms and dads, listen. You have been entrusted with the rearing and guiding of children. God entrusted the rearing and guiding of his son to two imperfect parents on earth, and they did something right. And I want to encourage you this morning to look at your children that God has entrusted you and ask yourself, how about the course that you have set for these children that God has entrusted to you? Where are you taking them? What are you pointing them to? What are you telling them about their identity? What are you telling them about God has this plan and you fit into it? What are they learning along the way? That's all an aside, by the way. From his very earliest years, Jesus was making this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem to worship at the temple. And we don't get very many details about that except in Luke chapter 2, verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Wait a second. God entrusts you with God in the flesh on earth. And you lose him. Whoops. Told you they were imperfect parents. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So they're gone a day. It takes a day to come back. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It literally says there, Did you not know it was necessary for me to be in the things of my father? The things of my father. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Did you notice that when Jesus was explaining what he was doing, he did not say to Joseph and Mary, I had to be in our father's house. Mary had just finished telling him, your father and I. And Jesus responded, I'm in my father's things. At age 12, Jesus understands his unique identity. And you know what I want to say as a result of reading that? Good job, Joseph and Mary. They did something right, didn't they? Jesus understood who he was. They weren't perfect. By the way, the only perfect parents are the ones who haven't had kids yet. You ever notice that? So moms and dads with kids at home still, you hang in there. But Joseph and Mary had done enough that Jesus had his course set for the rest of his time on earth. And I want to tell you, moms and dads, you can do this. You can do this for your children. You must do this. Stubbornly start your children on the course that they should go. Choose this when you chose to become parents, you chose this, follow through. By the way, this is the last mention of Joseph's presence in all the Gospels. It's as if Luke is saying to us, here, get this right, understand who the real father is of Jesus. In fact, Luke had set that up back in chapter 1, verse 35, when it said he'll be called the son of God. So for the next 18 years, Jesus lived at home in Nazareth. We assume that included annual trips like this to Jerusalem for the feasts, though there's no record of them. And I wonder how many more times Jesus sat in the temple and listened and asked questions and amazed people. I wonder how how much his wisdom grew and increased and how much more he amazed people and it become obvious year after year. I want to go next to John Chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's about two years before his crucifixion. This is another one of the visits to Jerusalem that we have recorded. And in verse 13, we read this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Zeal for your house will consume me. It's from Psalm 69, one of the psalms that speaks about the Messiah. Since it was first built, the temple represented the very presence of God in Israel. Where do you go to offer sacrifices to the house of God? Where do you go to present your newborn child to the Lord, the house of God? Where do you go to learn, to worship, to be as close to God as you can get? The house of God. Where will you find the special presence of God? In the most holy place, the place where only the high priest could go once a year. Where would you go to be near that? The house of God. So when people with dollar signs in their eyes turned the temple into an opportunity to take advantage of people who came to worship and to turn a buck or a shekel, it inflamed Jesus. Not in my house. Rather than helping people to worship, these guys were making it harder. Rather than directing people to God, they were directing money to their accounts. And Jesus said, take these things away. Not in my house. Zeal for your house consumes me. He was doing the Father's business. He was in the things of his Father. John 5 and John 6 record two more times that Jesus went to the feast of Passover. But I'd like you to turn next to Mark chapter 11, which by far is the most significant trip that Jesus made for Passover leading into what we call the Passion Week, where he would die. Jesus has carefully, deliberately made sure that he would make it to this point over three and a half years of ministry. He had to be in just the right place at just the right time in history, and he was there to die for the sins of the world at the right place, at the right time, in just the right way. It was not an accident. It was not a coincidence. And once again, Mark chapter 11, verse 15, Jesus shows up at the house of God. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Not in my house. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. In a matter of days, opposition against Jesus rises to the point where they will finally manage to get him falsely tried and convicted. And after being scourged and beaten, Jesus will stagger under the weight of the cross beam of a cross and walk through the streets of Jerusalem through a gate outside the city to a hill called Golgotha. And there the perfect lamb of God will offer himself on purpose as a sacrifice for sin once for all times. Because it was necessary for him, it was necessary for him to be in his father's business, the things of his father. Jesus had a zeal for the father's house. There's one point 
just one point I want to help everybody carry out the door this morning. So I want to stick it up here and get it in front of you. Jesus' zeal for the Father's house blazes the trail for anyone who would follow him. Have you noticed that when we use the word house, we don't just talk about buildings, do we? When you say, not in my house, <laughs> you're talking about your personal space. You're talking about your sphere of life. You're talking about your family, right? Your house. It's not just a building. Book of Hebrews, chapter 3. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews uses that word. It appears seven times. In these six verses, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, look at how the word house pops up over and over as it speaks about Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Jesus said he had to be in the Father's things, in the Father's house. It was necessary for him to be about the things of his Father. All those trips that Jesus made to Jerusalem back and forth, sitting in the temple, asking questions when he was just 12, cleansing the temple, all of those times he showed up were leading up to him to do the Father's business, to die as a faithful son over his house, and then to make us his house. I want to dig a little deeper into that idea this morning. Real quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, Paul writes. Skip down to verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you hear a running theme here? You and I in Christ are that house. That dwelling of God. Let me ask just a few questions to give us something to think and do about this. What if God's house is more than just a building? What if God's house is more than just a certain time or place? What if God's house isn't something that comes and goes with situations? Well, then we wouldn't treat it as if it was something we just visit sometimes and other times we leave behind. Amen? We wouldn't treat the house like it was just about events. We wouldn't walk off from it when we reach a certain age or when certain life events come upon us. We'd probably learn to focus on people and being joined together and being built together into a spiritual dwelling for God. I imagine our attitudes toward everything that we called church would look a lot more like God wants them to look, don't you? What if God's house is all-encompassing in life and not just one compartment of it? Well, then we wouldn't reserve some aspect of our minds or of our lives, or of our possessions, or our plans, and then treat them like those things we've kept for ourselves, rather than giving it all to God. We learn to look at one another, and at our friends, and at our co-workers, and our family members who come to visit, and we would say things like, you do realize, don't you, that I have to be about my father's business that this isn't just part of my life, but I am part of his house. What if zeal for the house consumed us? Well, then we'd be adamant about making sure that the house is in order. Amen? We'd toss out the things that don't belong. Not in my house. We'd care about everyone who was part of it. We would weep with those who weep. We would laugh with those who laugh. We would pray together. We'd be labeled radicals for the way that we worked to make sure that the house was the way that God wanted it to be, wouldn't we? Jesus was labeled a radical because he was zealous for God's house. When the world came after our children, our grandchildren, we'd put down our foot, not in my house. When the culture tells us we should compromise, we'd tell the culture, no, not in my house. We'd be consumed with thoughts about how we could grow the house of God into what he wants it to be, how we could bring others along with us, how we ourselves could grow ahead of where we were in our faith a year ago, 
And we would preoccupy ourselves with trying to think of ways that we could thrive like God wants us to thrive. We would follow the trail that Jesus blazed if we were consumed with zeal for his house. We just peeked in this morning about how Jesus feels about the Father's house. And I want to end this morning with one more look that I think helps make that even more clear. It's at the end of the book, Revelation chapter 21. It's what God has been planning for all along. It's the culmination of that plan. And it says there in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is God's plan. He wants you in this house. He wants you a part of that with him forever. That's how it's supposed to end. God's people are supposed to be a group of people who are zealous for his house. We want you to be a part of that. Us being zealous about that, being excited about that, caring about that means we want you to be part of that. Forgive our forwardness in saying we want you to have that. But we do. God's plan is that he would dwell with his people forever. And this morning, you can become part of that. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord in your life, you could do that today. You can take this opportunity, this moment. There aren't going to be a whole lot of places once you leave here today where you're going to be encouraged to do that quite as much. But we want to encourage you here to do that. If you know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he deserves to be Lord in your life, if you understand that you need him as your Savior and you're ready to commit your life to him, this morning would be a great time to do that. So we're trying to create a moment here, a moment for you to think about that and a moment to give you an opportunity to come forward and say, yep, I'm ready. I want to become a follower of Jesus, ready to say goodbye to the old life, ready to embrace life in him. I want to be baptized into him and start new today. If you're ready for that, we're ready to help you with all those steps right now. Let's stand up together. We're going to pray. And I want to ask you, please, especially if you have never accepted Christ, just to be thinking about the importance of that decision. And then after we're done praying here, we're going to sing a song together. I'm going to be standing right here at the front. This is a time that we want you to just come on down here. Come talk to me about your relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're, you're needing prayer, you're facing some discouraging times, you just need somebody to come alongside you and encourage you. Uh, this is a group of people who want to help you. This is the place where that can happen. Uh, this is the house of God. So if you've got a need like that today, this is an appropriate time just to come down and 
and speak about it. And let us pray with you. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for this record that lets us know about things that Jesus did. A trail that he blazed. Uh, Lord, though he came not just as an example, certainly his example where this is concerned is one we want to follow. Father, please put a deep burning zeal inside of us for your house, your business, your things, and use us in ways that you want to. Uh, God, I pray right now for decisions that we make, for those of us who have already been following you and things that we need to do differently, uh, for others, Father, who are uh, just on that verge of deciding uh, that they're ready to, to submit to you, to follow you. Right now, please help us to make choices that will honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.